Hello and welcome to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today we're talking with Dr. Scott Glassman, Clinical Assistant Professor of Psychology and Associate Director of the Master's Program in Mental Health Counseling at PCOM. Dr. Glassman's work focuses on primary care psychology, the patient-centered medical home, and growing positive emotions through motivational interviewing. He trains our DO students on patient-centered communication and has developed initiatives in our community-based healthcare centers to foster collaboration between DO, counseling, and psychology students. Welcome, Dr. Glassman. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, Dr. Feldstein. Dr. Glassman, what is some of the latest research telling us about the benefits of integrating behavioral health into primary care? 85% of primary care visits have an underlying behavioral health issue that's associated for, uh, with the reason for the visit, and whether that's mental health or a health behavior change uh, concern. We also know that poor sleep, uh, physical activity, diet, smoking, substance and alcohol use, medication, non-adherence, sad mood, they're all really common targets uh, for, um, for the primary care uh, intervention and brief interventions. We also see that 50% of depression uh, is missed um, in, in primary care settings. And we know that depression is a poor prognostic indicator for a variety of chronic health conditions. So if we pay closer attention to mental health, wellness, knowledge, awareness of uh, providers um, around those issues, we also can reduce the cost burden of illness. So it's been estimated that um, when one study looked at a psychologist who was added to a primary care practice, looking at claims before the year, two years before they were added to the practice, comparing those with claims with a year after they were added, they found an $860 per member per year savings in claims costs related to inpatient uh, care, outpatient ER utilization, uh, pharmacy. So there really is also, from a health outcomes perspective, a real advantage of paying attention to emotional health. Um, and there's also the, an advantage of paying attention to positive emotional states. We find that um, when we do that, and we try to foster positive emotions in our patients, um, that leads to uh, lower A1C levels, fewer cardiac events. Um, you see increased physical activity and improved diet. Um, and that's, you particularly see that in more mature integrated systems where you, you're having fewer inpatient ER uh, uh, visits. And patients are actually 60 to 70% less likely to use the ER and 50% less likely to be admitted to inpatient if we have that integrated care approach. And of course, you also have the mind-body approaches um, related to yoga, relaxation, deep breathing, mindfulness. Those third wave interventions have had a positive effect on depression, quality of life, and weight loss. So they're really interconnected, the uh, emotional, psychological, and uh, physical outcomes um, in health. It's almost like an artificial, artificial separation of the two. Like we're, we're working with that anyway in, in the primary care encounter. Well, thank you. In our last episode of the podcast, we focused on the opioid epidemic. How do you think integration of behavioral health into primary care can be helpful not only in, in fighting this crisis, but preventing yeah. opioid addiction yeah, from so, the beginning? Absolutely. It's, and and it's, it's such an important topic for all health providers to be thinking about right now. And, uh, people who are reporting higher levels of pain, multiple pain complaints, 
greater functional impairments due to pain. We know that they're at a higher risk for opioid uh, misuse. And a little over half of patients with pain complaints are, are seen in primary care, and that's an optimal point of intervention for them. I think the success of our opioid misuse prevention efforts depend in part in helping patients learn safe and effective ways of managing uh, chronic pain. And multiple studies have found that behavioral interventions that are used in primary care have a positive impact both on the physical symptoms and emotional functioning uh, related to pain conditions. And for instance, mindfulness uh, interventions, motivational interviewing, which is a style of interacting with a patient that helps them develop the internal motivation, uh, desire, and confidence in making healthy changes. Cognitive behavior therapy, they've all been associated with improvements in chronic pain symptoms. And as well and with comorbid depression and substance use concerns. Um, so uh, these eff those effects too don't take a lot of time, which we want when we're thinking about psychological interventions in primary care, whether it's for substance abuse or mental illness, we want doses that are going to fit within that setting. So they found that co cognitive behavior therapy, six to, eight, six to 10 hours actually, um, can be associated with some really positive outcomes. So if we are um, educating patients about opioid misuse effectively, if we catch uh, risk level early, um, if we're um, also taking an approach where we can offer the latest uh, in CBT for chronic pain management, I think we can really have a more preventive stance toward the uh, opioid problem uh, versus a reactive stance. As a behavioral health practitioner, how do you think an understanding of psychology can better prepare our DO students to work in integrated settings? Yeah, and it's so important. And for one, it's understanding the symptoms and treatment pathways in commonly encountered disorders like depression, anxiety, addictive behaviors. That's going to help make DO students more sensitive, comprehensive, and cost-effective practitioners. Um, but part of that sensitivity, too, is really appreciating the impact of psychosocial factors uh, in health and how conversations can help change health trajectories in a positive way. For instance, we're uh, running right now in our health support program a telephonic model where psychology students and medical students are on the, on the phone with a patient together um, with chronic illnesses, uh, usually uh, diabetes, so we're focusing on that condition. And together, they're identifying uh, lifestyle goals and building motivation for pursuing those goals um, in a way that enhances access. Um, when you're working with underserved populations, thinking about accessing um, health coaching, health support um, is, is a critical interest um, of ours. And you know, the reality is that most non-adherence uh, and adherence to treatment life following lifestyle recommendations or not following them happens outside of the office anyway. And we're living in a world where um, stress is, uh, stressful events, breakups, financial instability, social isolation, those are all things that can complicate uh, illness and that can make it more difficult to achieve well-being and life satisfaction. We're going to shift gears a little bit in this terms of what's the role of peer support and group interventions in health and wellness? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that because group interventions really have been increasing in recent years in small and large practices. 
Um, patient satisfaction scores um, with group interventions have traditionally been high, and we've also noticed high patient satisfaction scores with the group interventions that we've run here at PCOM. Our shared medical appointments for diabetes management um, often lead patients to uh, say that they feel very cared for and supported by their providers. And when we extend the primary care model like that, they just don't come in for a 15-minute diabetes checkup. They're coming in for uh, emotional support, education around their condition, um, thoughts about uh, how to problem solve more effectively both with their physician, with psychology, in a group, uh, supportive group setting. And we know that spending time uh, with other diabetic patients increases motivation for adopting diabetes-friendly lifestyles. And that's, that's our goal, right? We want to help people exercise more, um, have a better diet, um, increase their medication adherence and their treatment engagement in primary care. Um, and it, it's really uh, very nice to have physicians who can answer questions in a group setting. It saves time, it's efficient. Um, all, all patients with the same condition can hear that answer and at the same time and ask follow-up questions. One question in particular, what's, what's a good A1C number? That's something that can be handled um, very efficiently and well in a group setting. And it also gives patients that sense that my doctor goes above and beyond. Um, and that's consistent with the DO model, uh, again, all along. Um, it models the belief that health is really this composite of emotional and physical um, sides. You know, <clears throat> we, we've talked a lot about patients but more than 400 physicians a year commit suicide. Is there some research which suggests that mental health among this group can start to deteriorate in medical school? And from your perspective, what does self-care look like for this group? And what can we do to support our students? Yeah, Burn burnout's a real problem for medical students, residents, and seasoned physicians alike. I mean, it's not only mental health that's suffering, but there's some research to suggest that empathy erodes from the first year uh, to the fourth year in medical school. And that suggests at some level that the quality of patient care um, is at risk. So self-care begins, I think, for medical students, for physicians, with acknowledging its value and its importance. You know, we're healers and we're helpers and we think of other people first and we think of ourselves second. Um, but really, if we can, in some settings, in some situations, reverse that and create space for attention to physical well-being, emotional, spiritual, financial, um, relational well-being, those are all of the composite um, pieces to um, wellness and resilience and self-care that can be probably done from year one um, in medical school. If, for instance, uh, students can develop a self-care plan that they're checking in with every year, um, with uh, appropriate support. Um, also being just aware of what leads to burnout. I mean, there's some predictors, uh, for instance, self-judgment. Medical students, physicians, highly perfectionistic in their approach to, uh, in, approach to everything that they do. But the downside of that is it can lead to um, more depression, more stress, anxiety, and we want to kind of lower that by enhancing self-compassion. There's actually a website called selfcompassion.org where um, people can go and have simple exercises that they can use to become more empathic toward themselves. Um, there's also, you, you can kind of see perfectionism as a predictor. It's one of the strongest predictors actually of depression and anxiety for medical students. Um, so, so we want to target that. We also want to target isolation and over-identification, the feeling that um, 
we are too maybe immersed in the problems that uh, patients are bringing to us without the ability to separate, to detach ourselves from our work, to leave it in the office and not take it home with us. And in this day and age, when we're always connected, um, sometimes that means that our self-care is at greater risk because we're constantly being drawn into, um, into our work. And I think the last point um, that I'll make about that is that unless faculty are conveying the importance of self-care, um, it still may be looked at as an afterthought. So we want to model as, uh, as teachers, um, as uh, instructors, as physicians, as psychologists, we need to make time for this. It's important. It's important to us. It's important to our patients. Do you have any questions for me? In what ways does the osteopathic philosophy reflect not only the need for patient-centered communication, but also really comfort in working in an interprofessional setting? And that might include a social worker, a psychologist, a care coordinator. Well, you know, I think you kind of answered it, part of it in your, in your last answer to my question mm -hmm. in, in terms of holistic approaches yeah. and that the health of patients is, is multifactorial. Yeah. It's environmental, it's socioeconomic, it's spiritual. Yeah. And, you know, as holistic practitioners, that means bringing all resources to bear. Yeah. And those resources include team members. Mm -hmm. And I think our students are starting to be educated you know, this is not the day of Marcus Welby, although our students probably don't even know who Marcus Welby is, but you know, in my time, the doctor as the sole person who's in charge of everything, responsible for our decisions, that just doesn't work in today's world. Yeah. And because it is multifactorial, it's really becoming, healthcare is a team sport. And you know, we need to work with all members of the healthcare team. And the earlier we can do that at a student level, the more comfortable everybody's gonna be at the professional level. So I think that's you know, why we're trying to have <clears throat> interprofessional education here at PCLM. You're preparing students to fit into the workforce of the future. Correct. Telemedicine or telehealth is becoming more popular. And so I'm, I was curious, where do you see this taking us in the next 10 years? You know, it's, a, it's a really interesting question because if you, you think about it just from a historical perspective, you know, before there were telephones, you know, physicians made, you know, did everything in their office or made house calls. And once in the advent of the telephone, a lot used to be handled over the phone. And a lot of physicians did a lot of care over the phone. Now we're adding another component where it's really, it, it, it's tele in the sense it's visual. So we've added the visual component. And I think it's going to evolve two ways. One, just from an access standpoint. In rural underserved areas where there's limited access to either primary care or specialty care, it obviously serves a much needed function where you can you know, see a patient, you know, do physical diagnosis, technology via, via telemedicine. The second will be just a matter of convenience in today's world. You'll have a certain demographic that will feel no need to go to a physical space for care. Yeah. And for certain you know, problems, questions, they'll either do it via email uh, or they'll do it via telemedicine uh, through technology. So I, you know, I think that's how it's, it's going to shake out. At the end of the day, it'll, just, it'll replace or supplement a telephone call. Yeah, and maybe even more cost effective. Potentially. Yeah. Potentially. And then the real question is, who's that in 10, 15 years? Who's on the other end of that phone? Right. Is it even a real live human being, right. or is it an artificial intelligence medical avatar? Right, and the same question comes up uh, in terms of psychotherapy. You know, how can we deliver um, 
you know, e-models of right. psychotherapy, you know, are they as effective as, as uh, uh, online CBT compared to CBT in person? Um, do they match up? Do you get the same kinds of outcomes? You know, everybody's trying to leverage technology in healthcare in all aspects. And, you know, the question is going to be what, at the end of the day, what's the outcome? Right. You know, so you know, it's the technology first, which is sexy, but at the end of the day, does it really make a change? Right. Does the patient get a better outcome? And is it at a higher cost or lower cost? So, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. It, you know, it, and it goes beyond, you know, telemedicine. I, you know, start to see all these digital applications. Yeah. And you start to see digital applications for behavioral health mm -hmm. and substance abuse. That's right. PCOM's healthcare centers focus on treating underserved communities in both urban and rural environments. What role do you feel behavioral health providers have in community-based primary care centers? How would you like to see that role expanded or enhanced? I don't think you're offering quality primary care unless you have a behavioral health provider in a primary care office. Mm -hmm. It's been separated out because of the insurance industry. Yeah. The insurance industry carved behavioral health out of your typical insurance policy. Yeah. That caused an artificial fragmentation. And you know, it, it needs to be reintegrated from a reimbursement standpoint. And primary care, if, it, if you believe in an integrated holistic philosophy, you have to have a behavioral health provider in the office. It will provide so much better care and better clinical outcomes and reduce costs. You know, I, I can see it where in, in 10 years it becomes mandatory almost. Mm -hmm. I can see the insurers requiring it because as we continue, hopefully as an institution, to drive more clinical research outcome data to show it really improves clinical outcome and reduces cost, it, it's going to become mandatory. And health promotion has gained such traction in wellness programs across the board. You know, we, we talk about prevention. You know, nobody wants to invest in prevention. But in the end of the day, you have to, because that's how you're going to bend the cost curve in healthcare. It's not by monitoring the progress of a chronic disease. Yeah. It's by preventing a chronic disease. Yeah. And when we start to get down this line of value-based purchasing, the ultimate value is in preventing the chronic disease in the first place. That's where the real behavior change comes in. Yeah. And you know, as a motivational interview, it's, it's, all be, it's behavior change. Yeah. The prevention and treatment of chronic disease is behavior change. So you need a behavior change specialist in your office to help run these programs because in today's world, what does the patient see? A doctor for an average of seven minutes a visit, three to four times a year? What behavior are you changing? Right. And maybe even a telemedicine approach combined with that. Exactly. To support exactly. those. And tasks. health coaches in supporting that, whether it's through an app, mm -hmm. email, text messaging, whatever the modality is, that's where I think you'll start to see it all come together. Right, absolutely. Um, you were a practicing physician for several years and from your viewpoint, what kind of daily habits are important in creating a happy, resilient, and healthy physician? Probably the wrong person to ask that question to because <laughs> I actually, you know, I was an ER doctor for 10 years and I burned out. Mm. And, you know, I made a career change for my overall well-being yeah. because shift work just did not agree with me after 10 years. And, and trying to raise a family with young children, I was just not there. Yeah. Because at the end of a shift, you know, if you're working a three to 11 shift, you're kind of fried mm -hmm. and you don't go to bed till two, three o'clock in the morning and then you wake up and you're going to work 
And it's like, where's, where's, my, where's my family time? And where's the time for me? So, mm. you know, I can sit here and, and give you the classic do what the doctor says, not what the doctor does. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need to take care of yourself. You need to build time in for exercise, mm-hmm. proper nutrition, to give your own mindfulness space mm-hmm. to just relax. You, you know, want to build those habits in early, as we talked about, whether it's as a medical student during your residency. But it becomes very difficult. From a system standpoint, yeah. I think as we start to see more and more employed physicians mm-hmm. with more regular schedules, mm-hmm. it, it's, that's going to help them. Because yeah. you know, for better or worse, it's going to be more of a nine to five mentality. Mm-hmm. So there, there's built in time for them to you know, kind of decompress, you know, take care of themselves and take care of their families. And maybe even with the integration of behavioral health, having resilience be a, a component for providers and not just patients. So if we have that integrated into Correct. the setting. Correct. Thank you, Dr. Glassman. Well, thank you. As the field of healthcare continues to evolve, it's never been more important for us as educators to ensure the academic and emotional needs of students across all our programs are met so they can go on to deliver the best possible patient care. To learn more about Dr. Glassman and his work, visit pcom.edu. To listen to our past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.